Christchurch, New Malden, 23rd of February 2020, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Romans and the Covenant, a Covenant People. Well, it was quite a number of years now. Christchurch School decided to do a Christchurch School's Got Talent show here at Christchurch. The church was absolutely packed with parents with banners supporting their particular child and I was asked to be one of the judges. More specifically, I was asked to play the role of Simon Cowell. Now, if you're not familiar with Britain's Got Talent, the show that it was based on, Simon Cowell is the judge who's famous for being honest, sometimes to the point of rudeness, about the people that perform. But the thing was about this show that the contestants at Christchurch School's Got Talent were all young children, being incredibly brave and full of lovely enthusiasm. So how was I going to approach it? Well, what I chose to do that evening, uh, rightly or wrongly, was to sound a little bit like Simon Cowell as I began my response to each act. I gave the impression each time that I was going to be really harsh and merciless and unimpressed before suddenly turning it around and giving each of those acts the most enormous amount of praise. And with around about 17 acts that evening, the challenge that I had was to come up with around about 17 different ways of essentially doing the same thing again and again. Now, I was reminded of that when I started looking at this passage, Romans chapter 16, and started thinking about this sermon. Because what we get in Romans chapter 16 is Paul's response, not to 17 people, but actually quite a number more than that, 24 Christians are individually named in this chapter. And there's a few others that are referred to as well, not by name. And to each one of them, Paul gives a slightly different response. So like me, sitting down here at that Christchurch School's Got Talent evening around about seven or eight years ago, there's a general message that Paul wants to convey about all of them, but he still goes to some effort to make sure that what he says isn't all the same. That each of the people on this list have something special which is said about them. And the question is, why does Paul do this? As I said last week, if you were here, the essential message of this long letter to the Romans has really finished at verse 13 of chapter 15, the previous chapter. In the rest of chapter 15, Paul then talks about his future plans, the stuff that we looked at last week, all that stuff about hoping to go on to Spain and so on. And then he finishes this great letter, his most famous letter, with this long list of greetings in Romans 16. <coughs> now it's longer than any of the other greetings with which Paul finishes his letters. Interestingly, the one that it's most similar to is Colossians, and that's the other letter that he writes to a church that he hadn't yet visited. Now, it was quite a challenge for Bill as you read that great list of names. So, Bill, we thank you for you doing that with your fantastic Scottish voice. And so, to make Bill's efforts worthwhile, we've got to work hard as well this morning to consider, after 16 weeks of looking at Paul's letter to the Romans, what this long list, this entire chapter, made up by and large of all these names and these things that Paul says about them, what is this chapter trying to say 
to us today. The most obvious thing that it's saying, and probably the foremost intention of Paul when he wrote this passage, is the way that it brings home to us, yet again, in Romans, the importance of unity. The importance of the unity that all Christian believers have in Jesus Christ. Unity is the key theme of this letter to the Romans. Its message is that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has brought about the climax of his covenant plan. And the climax of that covenant plan is Jews and Gentiles coming together as one people, as one church, through Jesus Christ. Now, Romans isn't alone in having unity as its key theme. Paul's letter to the Galatians, 1 Corinthians and Philippians are the other letters that Paul writes that have this unity at the front and centre of their message. But here in Rome, the context was that Jewish and Gentile Christians were tempted to have either nothing or little to do with one another. And the reason for that was that the Emperor Claudius in the mid-50s, and we've mentioned this before but it bears repetition, in the mid-50s the Emperor Claudius had expelled all Jews, including Jewish Christians, from Rome. And in their absence the church had become rather dominated by Gentile Christians, meaning that when the Jewish Christians returned, probably shortly before this letter was written, their place and their status was uncertain. And as we've seen throughout this letter, Paul is at pains to show the Jewish Christians that God's intention through the covenant was always to bring the Gentiles into his family. And Paul's equally at pains to show the Gentile Christians that they should love the Jews as their brothers and sisters because those Jewish people had a crucial role without which the Gentiles would never have been able to enter God's people at all. So that's been the substance of Romans. But why this long list of names at the end? One of the points about this list is that we're not able to tell, certainly very easily, who are the Jewish Christians on it and who are the Gentile ones. Now, in one or two cases, it is fairly obvious, like Herodian in verse 11, who sounds pretty Jewish, and Paul says is one of his relatives, and Paul was Jewish. But in most cases, helped by the fact that many Jews, like Paul himself, would adopt a Gentile version of their name. Paul's Jewish name was Saul, and his Gentile name was Paul. The ethnic background of each of these members of the Roman church that we read about in Romans 16, and indeed plenty of their other differences that they would have had, they're pretty well disguised, aren't they? And that's because the things that make Christians different from one another, they should be played down, shouldn't they? God doesn't obliterate the different characteristics and identities that we possess when we become Christians. He doesn't abolish those things or say that they've got no significance or importance, but he does relativise those things, doesn't he? None of them ultimately matter compared to the identity that we now possess in Jesus Christ. And that's what we get in this list. Some of the people here are Jews, some of them are Gentiles, some of them are men, some of them are women, some of them are presumably rich, some of them are presumably poor, but the most important thing is that they're all united in one family. 
They're all united in one family as part of the people of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why I suggest this list of names is there at the end of this book, at the end of this letter to the Romans. Now, Romans wouldn't have been written in the way that it is if everything was fine in the Roman church. And so the way that this letter ends in Romans 16, it's aspirational, rather than reflecting the fact that everyone was actually united in the Roman church. But when aspirations are expressed in this manner, they do play a role in changing reality, don't they? What Paul is trying to encourage the Roman Christians to do by expressing this unity in this last chapter, that they're all equally valued and important members of the one church, Paul is hoping that the Roman Christians will then act up to that aspiration, that the way that they behave will then reflect some of what Paul is expressing in this chapter. So I'll leave out names, I won't do this with names, but imagine a list of greetings sent by Paul to Christchurch and including everyone across our very different congregations and groups and according them equal value. It might sound something like this, Paul's letter to the church at New Morden, to Christchurch. Greet the members of Women's Own who are so faithful in continuing to support one another and live their lives for Christ. Greet those who work in the church office, who go to such effort to make things run as smoothly at Christchurch as possible. Greet the scramblers and the climbers and the tiddlywinks who bring such fun and joy to the church. Greet the gardening and flower arranging teams who spend so much time making the grounds and church buildings at Christchurch look as beautiful as possible. Greet those who serve refreshments and the people who operate the sound desk, and the singers, and those who give lifts to other people so that they can get to church. And we could take it beyond Christchurch. Greet the members of St. Joseph's, Roman Catholic Church, New Morden Methodist, New Morden URC, the Baptists, and all those others who belong to Christ in New Morden. What Paul wants to do by reciting this list is for those Roman Christians, and I believe also the Christians of Christchurch New Morden, to see everyone else who belongs to Jesus Christ as their precious brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants that aspiration to be there so that people can catch that vision and then seek to reflect it in their practical behaviour. He wants to set out this vision of unity that then the Roman Christians and us can act up to. And the value that Paul places on each of these individuals in this list is also telling, isn't it? Just look at some of the things that he singles out. If you've got the Bibles open on page 1142, it might be helpful. So look at uh, verse 3. He singles out there Priscilla and Aquila. Now, they're mentioned not just here in Romans, they're mentioned in Acts chapter 18. And Paul says here that they risked their lives for me. Now, we're not quite sure how they did that or what it meant, but Paul wants to put on record Priscilla and Aquila, this couple, we know they were a married couple, and their service for Christ 
which was included putting their lives on the line for him. He then speaks of Mary in verse 6. We don't think this is Mary, the mother of Jesus, but it could have been, we're not sure. But it's, she, he says, who worked very hard for you. So Mary had obviously done stuff that was particularly connected with the Roman church. In fact, working hard is mentioned several times in reference to both men and women in this list in Romans 16. And when Paul gets to the end, the very end of the letter, he includes people whose greetings he's sending to Rome. And he's equally generous. Look what he says about Gaius. Verse 23, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy. He's probably talking uh, about the church in Corinth. Last Sunday, as I mentioned earlier, Jerry Noakes, a regular member of this church since I think the early 1960s, died. And as I also said, his wife Vivian uh, was also a committed member here, and she died last year. Now, Jerry wasn't always easy, and I wouldn't say that our relationship was always easy. Until that is Father's Day, about four or five years ago now. Now, Father's Day, four or five years ago, I was doing my usual thing of giving out chocolate to each of the men here at Christchurch. We do it at 9.30. The kids come up and get a bar of chocolate, fair trade dairy milk, and they go back and give it to their dads or the main man in their life or the grandparents or uncles or whatever. And here at 11 o'clock, we have a slightly more refined version of it, which is during the last hymn, I will go up the aisles. Uh, sometimes it might be Katie and Becky assisting me or Tim Davis. And we give a bar of chocolate to all of the men to assure them that we love them and they're a valued part of this church. Anyway, four or five years ago, I was doing this during the last hymn. And I went up to Jerry and I gave him his bar of fair trade dairy milk. And as I did, I said thank you to him for everything that he brought to Christchurch. And afterwards, out in the lounge, in a different conversation to any that we'd really ever had before, Jerry asked me why I'd said this. And he said, why have you said that? Because I don't feel I contribute anything these days to Christchurch. And I reminded Jerry, because I'd known about it from old church magazines that I'd read, I reminded Jerry about his past in leading a home group and about his past in organising lifts for people to get to church. He was in charge of that team for quite some while. And more importantly, I spoke about his present contribution, coming along with Vivian so faithfully and regularly and being a valued and loved part of our community here. And from that moment on, our relationship basically changed, became a great deal easier, became really pleasant. And it was a real privilege to be with Jerry at Kingston Hospital for a really good chat. We spent about 40 minutes uh, chatting uh, in the week before he died. Romans 16, in what it says about these 24 named people, proclaims that every single member of God's family has immense and infinite value in his sight. And it's a value that we need to reflect back to each other on a regular basis. And sometimes we can do it better than at other times. Something that's a responsibility for us all. I had a very similar conversation with Lily Lowcock, who's recovering from a stroke, when I visited her last week. I said, we really miss you, uh, Lily. 
Um, and Lily said, well, I don't know why I don't feel I contribute much. And it was a very similar conversation to the one that I'd had with Jerry five or six years ago. And I said, yes, we do. You're regular and you're committed and you're part of the furniture here at Christchurch. I mean that in a, in a, in a nice way. I think she understood. <laughs> Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's what Paul says in verse 16. And while we don't necessarily have to take that literally, although we could do a lot worse, we do need to give expression to what it means. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That means we don't just say hello, we actually do something that symbolises the depth and affection and the family relationship that we're in. Now, Christchurch at its best, particularly this 11 o'clock service, already does that. But we just need to roll it out consistently so it includes everyone. And so that people don't drift into thinking, particularly if they can't contribute as much as they once did, that they are really superfluous to requirements. That's not true of anyone here. Every single member of this church has infinite value and they are part of this family, without which the family is not as complete as it could be. Now, sometimes people, for whatever reason, can't be here with us. Valerie Johnson uh, will be at home in uh, Carlton Road at the moment, but she'll be thinking of us, and she'll be praying about us, and in a sense, she is here uh, with us because of that. But everyone, without exception, is valuable in the sight of God. We had a tremendous sermon from Rob Shrimpton this morning at 9.30 about being a church that cares for those with special needs, for those with different needs, as he preferred to put it. And he spoke about their infinite value in God's sight. And that is true of every single member of this church. And we need to be in the regular business of being part of channeling God's love towards one another expressing both our unity as a whole and the infinite worth of each individual within this church. Both men and women. Now, it may not be obvious, but Romans 16 is actually one of the crucial passages in the entire Bible for affirming women's leadership in the church and for reflecting Paul's endorsement of it. Now, sadly, one of the reasons why you may be surprised about that is because the NIV translation of 1984 has done its absolute best to disguise this in two places. So just look, and it is important that you look at this because it's an important corrective. Page 1142, just look at the start of the chapter, chapter 16. The very first person that Paul mentions is a woman called Phoebe. And we read here in our translation that she's a servant, although notice the footnote, she is a servant of the church in Kentcria. Kentcria was a village close to Corinth. That's one of the reasons why we think Paul wrote this letter from Corinth, as well as the mention of Gaius. And it's very likely that Paul's commending Phoebe in these verses because she's the one entrusted with delivering the letter. But the word that's translated there as servant in verse 1 is the Greek word diakonos. Now, the NIV translates it here as servant, but elsewhere where it's used, for instance, in Paul's letters to Timothy, it's translated as deacon. And the reason it's translated as deacon, diakonos, 
It does mean servant. But the reason why it's translated deacon is recognition of the fact that it was an official title in the church. There were church leaders that were known as deacons. The NIV, the 1984 version, has chosen to translate its servant here, I think because it's a little bit nervous about referring to a woman as a deacon. And look down at the footnote, because it gets worse. If you look down at the footnote, it doesn't say or deacon, it says or deaconess. And I'm afraid there is no reason for it to do that. There's no justification. Phoebe was a deacon, and the text gives no hint at all that this was some sort of lesser status than that of the male deacons appointed to the church. In fact, it's been suggested that if Phoebe was entrusted with this letter to the Romans, she was almost certainly entrusted as well with its interpretation and with answering questions about it. So, we need to correct that. Fortunately, the up-to-date version of the NIV, if you look at the 2011 version, it does say deacon uh, in uh, the text. Uh, the NIV committee has changed that. But I'm afraid if you look at verse 7, we see something similar. So if you look down to verse 7, according to the 1984 NIV translation, Paul greets Andronicus and Junias, whom he says have been in prison with me, he says they're outstanding among the apostles, and he says they were in Christ before me. In other words, they were Christians before Paul. The problem here is that verse 7 does not refer to a man called Junias. No such name existed. It refers to a woman called Junia. And it's been changed, I'm afraid, in order to disguise the fact that Paul is referring to a female apostle. They're outstanding amongst the apostles, Andronicus and Junia. Now, as I say, I'm glad to say that that's been corrected as well in the latest version of the NIV from 2011. If you read chapter 16 in this, you'll see it makes clear that Phoebe was a deacon and it makes clear that the apostle Junia was a woman, and rightly so. In fact, it's been suggested, and this was the reason for the first readings that Audrey brought to us this morning, it has been suggested that Junia was in all likelihood the same person as Joanna, who was mentioned in our first readings. Jews did, as I said earlier, often adopt a Gentile equivalent of their name. And Joanna was a follower of Jesus during his earthly ministry. She was a witness to the resurrection. That was the qualification for being an apostle. And so Junia would fit with, or Joanna rather, would fit with Paul's statements here about Junia. And it may be that Andronicus was the same person as Junia's uh, husband or Joanna's husband, Chusa, who is mentioned in Luke as the steward of Herod's household. And certainly they would fit with being Christians before Paul was. Now that last bit's just a possibility. The major point from Romans 16 in reference to women's ministry is that it's fully affirmed by Paul. Women like Phoebe and Junia, and also the others mentioned, Priscilla, Mary, Tryphema, Tryphosa, Persis, and Julia, they're all affirmed as equally valued and empowered and responsible members of the church. That's the major point, I think, 
in terms of women's ministry coming from Romans 16. And the major point from Romans 16 overall, which I've been trying to emphasise this morning, is that all of these people mentioned, and by extension everyone who belongs to God's one people in Jesus Christ, are equally valued and important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that famous passage, Paul talks about every member of the body of Christ being given gifts by the Holy Spirit and therefore being equally crucial to the church. And this list of names that Paul gives in Romans 16 and what he says about each person, well, it's basically saying the same sort of thing using another method. And it's interesting that in the bit of this passage, where Paul turns from affirmation to warning in verses 17 through to 19, it's interesting what Paul singles out there. He singles out those people who were trying to cause division in the Roman church by smooth talk and by flattery, and therefore deceiving the minds of naive people. Now we're not totally sure what he had in mind here, but it looks very like he's singling out those who didn't want to affirm this unity, who wanted to create some level of elitism by smooth-talking some into believing that they were somehow superior to others. And Paul won't have it. He makes clear what he also makes clear in his letter to the Galatians, that famous verse we often quote, Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. God's people are one. Theologically, we are one. But our challenge as Christians is to make sure we reflect that. In the way that we act overall as a church to display our unity as a community where all are welcome and equally valued and equally affirmed, but also to make sure that all of the individuals within our church get a very, very strong message of their value in God's sight and that they bring stuff to this church without which we would be less. So that's it, 16 weeks of looking at this great letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church. It's taught us hopefully a great deal about God's covenant and the mysterious way in which through Jesus Christ God brought about the creation of a single united people of God, equally valued, important and gifted by the Holy Spirit. And the challenge for us now is how we respond. How do we respond in making this vision of the church into more of a concrete reality here at Christ Church New Morden? Let's pray for God's help as we respond to that. Father God, we thank you for this church which for over 150 years has sought to be an influence for you and a channel of your love in this part of the world. And we pray for Christchurch now. We pray that we would be united across all of the things that might divide people in the outside world. We pray, Lord God, that we would be unified through our membership of the body of Christ and within that we pray that every single member of this church women and men alike children and adults young and old people of different ethnic groups 
and different backgrounds. We pray, Lord God, that every single person would receive a very strong message of their value in your sight. We thank you for every single member of this church down the years. We thank you for the life of Jerry Noakes. And Lord God, would you open our eyes, particularly to those members that need more affirmation about their value, so that we can be more and more a community that reflects the aspiration to be a people totally united and totally loving one another through the love that has found us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We know that we need great wisdom from you to do this well, and we pray for that wisdom and for the courage to do things differently so that people would experience your great love for them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.